Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, January 28th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to stop by the water cooler and to discuss what we've been up to. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. And writer, Kwai Tren Bui. Hey, everyone. And uh, that is it, because everybody else is at Sundance. Brad, Ben, and Chris are all in Park City, so this is going to be a half-filled water cooler episode we th- we thought about holding back the water cooler episode until they returned later this week but all they would be talking about is sundance movies we're going to do a sundance uh, movie you know best of sundance movie special later this week so that kind of you know cancels that out anyways so uh you know speaking of sundance we have a ton of reviews on the site uh, Jacob, what do you think uh, are the most interesting of the Sundance reviews filed thus far? Yeah, we published a whole bunch over the weekend and even more today and more coming tomorrow. Uh, so we should definitely check out the show notes for links to a whole bunch more. But the ones I want to highlight, uh, Ben Pearson re- reviewed I Am Mother, which sounds like a very cool uh, post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie, the kind of you know high-minded, you know thoughtful science fiction you tend to see at lower budgets at film festivals. Uh, you should check out that review for sure. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris Evangelista reviewed *The Farewell*, a, a a dramedy starring Aquafina, who you, we saw in *Crazy Rich Asians* and uh, *Ocean's 8 last year, and it, it's a really good review. And the director shared it and was very moved by the review. So, if the director liked it, you should like it too. Uh, Chris also reviewed *Velvet Buzzsaw*, the new Netflix movie directed by Nightcrawler's Dan Gilroy, starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. About a about killer paintings and the reaction to this seemed a little mixed uh, online, but Chris really dug it and thought it was very funny and very silly in all the right in all the right ways. Uh, Brad also wrote a bunch of reviews for us. Uh, Honey Boy, the new Shia LaBeouf movie where he plays his own father uh, and sort of does an autobiographical movie written by him about his own childhood. Uh, that sounds like a crazy idea, but the reviews have been very, very positive, and the performances are apparently amazing. Apparently, it really recontextualizes who LaBeouf is as an actor. So definitely read Brad's review. Uh, Brad also reviewed The Report, the new Adam Driver movie about the, uh, uh, the government uh, investigation into torture after 9-11. And it's a very good review. I know him and Chris both loved it to the point where Chris was 
I know Chris really wanted to review it yeah. too. So uh, you've idea when two critics were both kind of battling over review because they both loved it so much, you should definitely check that one out. Yeah, and we have like probably a half dozen more that we didn't mention uh, linked in the show notes. So you can uh, find those at slashfilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, but let's get into let's let's get into the water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. I spent a lot of this last week. Well, first of all, my my girlfriend Kitra has uh, been out of town. She went to visit her grandpa, who it was his birthday, and uh, so I've been left alone. So what that meant is I spent a lot of time thinking about magic. Uh, I think I mentioned last week that I kind of decided that it's, now is the time to like get things going. I need to get my act my actual routine that I want to perform at the Magic Castle together. And I, I've been kind of putting it off and like it's been in kind of development for a long time and a lot of like, you know, thinking about it and talking about it, uh, but not actually doing anything about it. Some some of my friends have been saying I've been grinding my gears about it. Um, so I think everybody has said that I just need to like start going down in the, I guess they call it, they call it the cellar. It's it's the basement of Magic Castle, and it's like this impromptu space where people, uh, you know, it's almost like an open mic night of uh, for, for for magic, and uh, that's where people get to like try out new stuff and you know improve, and even you know big famous magicians go there to you know uh, you know try to work out new material and stuff like that. Um, but I I really want to perform down there and i have performed there a couple times i think i mentioned that but i i don't have a routine so this week i met with a couple magician friends and we had a couple scripting nights where we each like performed one of our tricks and like gave each other notes and like we're behind our computers actually in screenwriting software uh, you know uh scripting out our routines and um i i think i've uh made some major headway here and i'm uh, i'm excited to actually uh perform this i i think next week i i we've given out we've each given ourselves two weeks to come up with a routine that we're actually gonna go down into the cellar and perform see if it works or not hey, peter um, i have a question yeah. about that uh how carefully scripted is most magic? Is this normal? Like, for, like for example, when David Blaine or someone big does a show, are they following a script, or are they experienced enough to kind of have a technical roadmap and they kind of like fill in the gaps with like improvised conversation? How how does it usually work, or is this what's wow. the process? Well, it's different for everybody. I would say magic is very highly scripted because you can't really just create the magic out of nowhere. Like, you know, every good magic trick probably has a lot of uh preparation behind you getting that effect but the 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 thing that the magicians are saying up on stage or in a close-up room or whatever uh that can vary like uh so if you get a comedy magician who or like in a mentalist that is dealing with you know taking someone out of the audience and having them up on stage with them and it's more about the interaction between those two uh, I mean, obviously that's prepped and planned, like there's a plan for it, but that's a lot more of like, I guess, improv. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to get to a place that is in the plan, but not, um, you know, the, the lines aren't scripted out. Um, there, there, my friend, John Armstrong, who is a very successful magician, um, he does his in an interesting way. That's almost when he scripts his, he doesn't script his, as a screenplay format, he scripts it as a flow chart. So, uh, 
you know, he'll ask a spectator a question, and depending on the answer to that question, like usually it'll be like a, a question that has like either two or three an- possible answers. He has a scripted response based on those answers, and it, it's almost if you look at it, it almost looks like that Bandersnatch. Uh, flowchart that we published on the site of the, that's how his magic routines uh, kind of work. It's I hope I'm not giving too much away by saying that, but um, because that's not giving away any secrets. But uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I I'm not sure that I'm going to be scripting down to the word of what I'm saying, but I definitely need to when I perform. Uh, I definitely have a lot of you know, uh, me- meandering, I-, I need to tighten it up a bit. So I need to at least get like the bullet points down to the bullet points, if that makes sense. Of what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I'm also trying to come up with, uh, a routine that, that fits me, which I think is the, the hardest part. Um, so like for instance, I'm working, at, uh, one of the tricks I wanted to do is a mentalism trick where, uh, Jacob, you you know you're in the audience. You're picked, and somehow you uh, think of a movie, and but my character is not a mentalist, so I I cannot read minds. So I was trying to come up with a clever way to to still use this trick without it being a mentalism routine. And the solution I think we came up with, I still needed to try it in front of audiences, is that uh, you know because I've been writing about movies for so long, I know people's tastes in movies and i am like the netflix movie recommendation algorithm so i would ask you jacob a bunch of questions about your movie tastes and then also a couple questions about your relation to the movie that you're thinking of and i would then be able to determine the movie based on those things so it's not i'm reading your mind i am uh coming to it from you know an algorithm, you know, a movie recommendation algorithm way. Um, so I don't know. I think that's interesting. That's something that no one, I, I don't think anybody's ever done in magic. Um, but I'm really trying to make things around movies and me and my personality, which is uh, a lot tougher than it maybe sounds, if that makes sense. You know, it, it makes sense. I think the idea of a movie themed magician is actually very cool. Like your, your tricks all built around movies and iconography that people are familiar with is actually something that I think would really play well, especially in LA. Yeah. And it's also tough because I don't want it to be gimmicky. Like, Oh, he's the movie magician. And do you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so so, I don't know. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to try it out. Like the, the thing that I have now, the, the routine that we've been building is definitely not the routine. I, it's not my goal. Do you know what I mean? It's just the thing to get me. It's the training wheels to get me started and to start going down there and figuring out what's working, what's not, and eventually get to the place that I'm trying to get to. Um, so uh, I know people probably listening to this movie podcast like, why is he talking about magic for so long? So I, I apologize. Uh, but um, what else happened this week? Uh, oh, uh, Kitra was bringing one of her dogs, uh, our Pomeranian, who is named Gizmo to her grandfather's with her and uh, the night before she was leaving she asked me well, I was in bed already she was like can you clip Gizmo's nails I'll hold him and can you with these uh, dog nail clippers clip his nails and I, I thought at the time I was like this is not the time to do it I'm like already like you know ready for bed whatever like I was like this is a bad idea um, so I start clipping the dog's nails and 
I must have cut one of the nails too short because blood started <gasps> squirting everywhere. And it was like a lot of blood. Like I, I, I've never cut, I've never had this happen where you cut a dog's nail too, uh, too small. But apparently, like they bleed a lot, and it was, it was freaking scary. <laughs> it was like I, I thought like something had horribly gone wrong. We were like looking up like solutions online of, um, I guess. I guess if uh, if this happens and you don't have the required like the things that you need to fix it, uh, you know, if you dip your dog's nail in baking soda or cornstarch, and that lets it clot up, that's the solution. Uh, but I, I basically held my dog for like like an hour on his back, like you know, making oh, sure. yeah, it was uh. It was it was scary. While well, uh, Kitra ran out to like go get baking soda, <laughs> and I, we we all or no cornstarch because we had baking soda, and I guess you're supposed to use a combination of baking soda and cornstarch. But he ended up being fine. It, it, it was fine. An hour later, he was running around and was his usual self. But like for a while there, he was like sweating and like yeah bleeding all over the place yeah i I think it was more of just the amount of blood that like scared the heck out of us because apparently if you don't clot it 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 can be become a problem but alas i am not gonna cut my dog's nails ever again we're we're gonna bring them to to get professionally cut uh, when when they get their haircuts i don't care if it costs a lot of money i'm just i'm just too scared of it now Like, I, I just don't want that to happen again. Um, okay, anyways, Jacob, what have you been doing? Well, this early part of this week and end of last week was some of the busiest time of the site because we have three people at Sundance, so it's been a skeleton crew with just me, HD, and Peter. So over the weekend, I decided I'm going to completely shut down. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to enter a zen mode and relax, going to recover from Thursday and Friday and get ready for Monday and Tuesday. So I stayed in, and I watched a lot of TV, and I painted miniatures, which I've been talking about for weeks and weeks now, which is very, very cathartic. It's very, very hypnotic. It's very, very good. It's a very good food replacement for someone who's on a diet like me. Like, instead of wanting the snack, I go paint a new miniature, and I painted some more fantasy uh, metal figures for future, you know, RPG games. I painted more Warhammer 40K stuff, and I put a lot of pictures up on my Twitter and on my Instagram. So if you want to see the fruits of a weekend where I do nothing but paint and watch Game of Thrones, you can check those out now. Yeah, no, I I looked at these photos on Instagram. I'm I'm just incredibly impressed by these, Jacob. Like these look so good. I, like I don't know. Like you you aren't like showing us close ups, so I know I realize that. But from the photos you are showing us, like it looks a lot more detailed than I was doing when I was heavy into this whole miniature painting hobby. What I was taught by a guy at the Games Workshop store actually was that if the figure can be held at arm's length and look good, that's how most people are going to see it. So um, even though I'm, I'm taking that to heart, like, um, I, for example, I, I'm not painting a, a figure's eyes because that would require, you know, so much effort to, have, to the point where I, no one's ever going to see that eye. Oh, so I, 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 I've tried that, and it usually ends up looking horrible. It like, looks yeah. like, like one of those, like, bad toy, like, you know, like a, like a bootleg toy with, like, the eyes, like, um, what do you call that, like a wandering eye? That's what it usually yeah. looks like. Lazy eye. Yeah, yeah lazy eye. Yeah, so, so what, I, what I'm doing is, like, for, for faces and, and details, I'm using uh, various uh, shading paints and various oils that, like, you know, uh, like you know, sort of sit into the creases of, of clothing and sit into the creases of faces. So from a distance, um, it creates the illusion of a painted face. But if you're getting close, you can tell, you know, oh, there's this face is just, you know, detail with, with shadows. 
But, you know, for me, a miniature is not meant to be looked at at super close. It's meant to be looked at, you know, from a certain distance. And you're painting for that distance. So if I zoomed in the camera really close, you may see some inconsistencies, some areas where it's maybe a little rougher than others. But, you know, I'm, I'm painting for the for the space and distance in which myself and anybody I play with will ever see them. So I have been doing, excuse me, um, doing ballet again. Uh, so this was something that came about because... Um, I talked a little bit about class pass, oh, maybe a year ago, and I've been doing mostly just hot yoga and class pass. But recently, I um, invited my friend, my roommate, to um, to try it out. And when she had her her first like two week free trial, she gets like however so many credits, so she can try out like a bunch of different classes. So she asked if I wanted to come along with her to do a ballet class, and um, I actually used to dance ballet uh, when I was from about for about 10 years I danced since I was like in kindergarten through like high school sophomore year so this was something that I had been part of my life for a long time I was like 15 oh, wow. when so, I stopped so about yeah 11 years 11 it's been years, 11 yeah. years since I did ballet and um yeah it's it's honestly like riding a bike again um it was a lot of fun to just kind of get back into uh, the positions and moves and remember realizing that you remember more than you thought. But I also did realize that I had better, I was be- better at retaining the dance routines than I, well, back then than I am now, because you were able to memorize things or see something and then like immediately be able to rec- recreate it. Now I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. But, um, it was, it's, it was really nice. I think I'm going to keep doing it because it's just nice to sort of go back to something that I was a really big part of my life for a while. I had even like at some point at that later point of um, doing ballet, I had gotten to the level where I could go on point shoes, which is like the shoes that you have that have like a little wooden block at the end. And um, so you do like a a little more advanced and kind of scary, but it was, it was fun to do it again. I was, I was just like in a, a adult basics class. So it was very like, back to basics, but it was good to sort of get that going again. That's very cool. Uh, you, you know, magic to me was something like that where, you know, I did it as a kid and then off and on throughout high school and I kind of put it away for many years and then kind of came back to it and uh, fell in love with it again. Jacob, is there anything like that for you? Oh, goodness. Um, also, I love as a kid is dead, so I don't know. I used to always used to lose a kid like I <laughs> I was like, I want to, I want to draw, I want to, I want to draw and, um, and build Legos and tell stories and none of that happened. So who knows? Still time, still time for me to write that great American novel, Peter. We'll find out. By the way, I went to the Magic Castle again this week with someone who is a Andy Bach, who is a Lego artist. So he produces like these like 2D Lego mosaic mosaics, mosaics, uh, like pieces that are hung in like, you know, art museums and stuff like that and they sell for lots and lots of money and i didn't know that there was a i didn't even know there was a like you know market for that that the people were buying like you know these big framed lego like uh images and like some of them are abstract some of them are you know reproduce reproducing you know actual thing you know like places and people and things um but uh i don't know it's crazy so you you jacob don't, never give up on your dream you could be making money as a lego artist today i'm gonna be the banksy of legos i'm gonna run people's homes i'm gonna tear down their walls at night replace them with legos and see, <laughs> and see how things go yes yes 
<laughs> that that would be that would be funny. And then you videotape it and you release that video on YouTube, and then make uh, lots of money on the uh, the the video advertising. <laughs> Until I'm arrested for tearing down people's walls. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, Jacob, you, you're the only one that's been reading stuff this week. So what have you been reading? Uh, yeah, in the past few weeks, I've been reading uh, Battle Angel Alita, the source material for Alita Battle Angel. And I finished the volumes I had, so I decided to go – well, I waited for the next volume to arrive from Amazon. I decided to fill in another um, manga blind spot, I'm, and I fought, took HT's advice after literally two years of her talking of Full Metal Alchemist uh, by yeah. Hiromu Arakawa. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, HT. Am I? Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, I decided to start reading the manga. She's been—I know she's a huge fan of the anime, and uh, so I figured, I'd, you know, eventually we're HG are going, are going to do a thing where we talk about anime. At some point, it's going to happen. And so I'm doing my homework right now with the, with the manga, and um, I'm about halfway through the first hardcover volume, and I'm really enjoying it. The basic gist of this is that it's a fantasy series set in sort of a industrial revolution Europe fantasy setting, following two brothers, Edward and Alphonse, who uh, used alchemy to try to bring back a dead mother. It resulted in uh, one, one having their soul trapped inside a suit of armor, the other one losing limbs, and now they just travel all around trying to locate the Philosopher's Stone so they can restore, their, restore themselves while solving mysteries, while fighting evil, while getting on many adventures. That's for the template so far. I don't know if there'll, if there'll be a larger plot that kicks in at some point. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm still at the point where it's like they wander, they're wandering from town to town, finding adventures, solving them in very fun ways. And it definitely has that sort of... Um, Saturday morning cartoon vibe of each so far each story story wraps up pretty neatly, but I really 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 like the characters and the comedy, and I really like the the way the the powers of the two characters are used. I mean, one of them's a big walking suit of armor, and the other one is able to you know pretty much touch the floor and use materials on the floor to make a weapon to fight in that scenario. And it's you know very anime, it's very fun, and after um the sort of there's there are elements of, of Alita where I was kind of like, ew, this is a little icky, uh, <laughs> even when it's good. Fullmetal Alchemist is written and drawn by a woman. I feel like that makes all the difference. There's, It has a, a softer to it, to all the humor, to the female characters, to pretty much everything. And HD, I know you're a big fan of the anime. Have you read the manga as well? I have. I've read the all of the manga. And um, there are two anime series. So the original uh, was uh, being created simultaneously as the manga was being published. And it actually caught up to the manga and went off on its own story. Um, whereas, and then later on, they kind of redid um, another series where it followed more closely to the manga storyline. And I actually had watched the original anime first and really enjoyed where they went. Um, and like, they sort of like boldly went into like this very um, philosophical, very strange direction for their ending. And uh, while the manga storyline is really great, and it has uh, some f- fantastic characters who enter in later on. I have a soft spot for the original anime because I think that it touches on some sort of philosophical and uh, comment- comments on race as well uh, that the other one, which is more story-driven, does not quite get to. But um, I'm really happy you're, you're reading it. I love this series so much, both the manga and the anime and both versions, even though I'm one of the few defenders of the original series. But um, I think it's a, a great shoujo uh, manga, shoujo being uh, geared more towards the boy demographic action adventure kind of stuff. But it, it, it appeals to everyone and that has like both comedy, humor, and some more sad and honestly depressing moments. Have you gotten to Nina yet? I have not, no. I'm, okay. I'm pretty early on. 
Uh, I'll right. say this much. So, the, the weirdest comment I can say this, this, this may sound backhanded, but this uh, Full Metal Alchemist makes adult me uh, have the same feelings that 11-year-old me had about Dragon Ball Z back in the day, which is I probably wouldn't enjoy Dragon Ball Z like it did when I was a young child, but it awakens the same sense of like, joy and adventure that that show did when I was a much younger person. Awesome. Well, it does get much darker towards the end, not even towards the end, about like maybe one or two more volumes in. And um, it's definitely one that gets much more heavy handed uh, than you would expect this sort of fun adventure, adventure, action adventure series to go. All right. So well, I'm looking, looking, forward, forward, to, looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. How, how big are these mangas, like the volumes? They're, um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, H.G. Uh, well, it's been a while since I read it, but um, I, they're not that long. I think uh, you can get through one in like a day, even yeah. less. So is it yeah, like I'm, a traditional style where it's like the size of like like one of those like Scott Pilgrim books? Yeah, I think the, the paperbacks are. I'm actually reading the hardcovers okay. uh, cause, cause, because I like hardcovers a lot and they look fancy. And I know each hardcover is two volumes of paperbacks. So they're uh, slightly larger, both in uh, thickness and, you know, length than... Um, uh, than the paperback versions, and there'll be half as number, half as many of them when they're all when they're all set and published. However, the um, uh, Battle Angel Alito hardcovers I've been reading, uh, which also cover uh, two paperbacks each, are actually full size books. They blew them up into very larger books compared to the original printings. But the uh, Full Metal Alchemist uh, paperbacks are, I'm sorry, Full Metal Alchemist hardcovers are much smaller they're, they're, than the Alito ones, but they're uh, also much cheaper. These are traditional mangas. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening out there that have not dipped their toes in this so you're reading right to left right oh uh, yeah and it, it took me maybe five minutes to get used to it. but once you once you get used to it, it's like not a thing at all like i was really worried that like i'd get confused but you know i i think that once you understand if you don't if you don't read a comic book you, you can read a manga and that was my and my main concern was that i would be so used to western western comic books that i would i would screw it up and get things out of order but it hasn't been an issue at all it's very easy to read, and uh, once you get used to it at first. Um, but yeah, I'm, I have lots of memories of reading them at the at my local like Barnes and Noble, which uh, and drinking like a huge frappuccino and sitting on the floor while reading them. So <laughs> this is uh, I'm glad that you're getting into. It. I'm just I'm really excited. I love Little Alchemist. I feel like I used to also use Barnes and Noble as almost like a library. You'd go there and you'd can't you'd find a chair. You'd bring like a stack of books and just like spend the day there like reading through like i don't know but i feel like people don't do that anymore at least not in los angeles in the city like is that something that people still do uh i visit my barnes over pretty regularly and when i used to live in san antonio i saw it all the time but not in austin so i don't know if it's a regionalized thing or not but i know i used to see it it's not much anymore yeah okay let's move on to what we've been watching i i'm not at sundance this year guys and uh i was anticipating that I wasn't like I want I kind of wanted a year break and uh I mean last year I wasn't there because of breaking my wrist but I was kind of in pain so that that kind of uh you know that that was occupying me um I didn't think I was gonna miss it but oh do I miss it and maybe it's because uh you know Kitra's out of town I'm in the the home alone and looking at my Twitter feed and every, you know, all my friends and colleagues are having fun seeing all these movies early. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of, uh, you know, FOMO not being there. And, uh, so on Saturday, you know, I was, I was sitting there like kind of hating myself <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'll go see some movies. I have this AMC a list pass. So I'll, I'll just go, go to see some movies. Um, I went 
and saw a double feature. I saw Serenity and the kid who would be king. I was able to work it out so that I like, you know, I didn't have, you know, any break. It was like the exact timing I needed. Um, Serenity, we talked about last week on the podcast a little bit. HT kind of went into her spoiler review. I, I had no interest in seeing this movie until I found out what the surprise was from HT. And uh, and I want to say, like, the marketing for this movie kind of hints that there's there's something there's some kind of interesting twist along the way. So I don't think it's a, a spoiler to say that there is some, some kind of interesting twist in this movie. Like, uh, the movie is kind of about, uh, uh, I guess, Matthew McConaughey is a fisherman on an island somewhere. And... Uh, one of his exes kind of comes along to try try to hire him to kill her husband. Is that correct, yeah. HJ? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it, it is. Uh, the, the ex is Anne Hathaway, and her husband is Jason Clark, and it's it's trying to be this kind of sexy thriller. I don't think it's either one of those things. <laughs> um, it's uh, very kind of melodramatic and it's not enough melodramatic to be fun um it's i feel like it, it's weird and i don't want to get into spoilers here but it's weird it's such a weird movie i don't know how this got made or who greenlit this or who thought it was a good idea um every scene matthew mcconaughey is like smoking and drinking like i i don't think and her and or he's naked and or yeah he's naked but, like, I don't think I've seen in the last 10 movies combined, or 10 years of movies combined, this much smoking in a movie. It was actually kind of, like, distracting. It almost, I was almost, like, looking in the credits, like, is this sponsored by, you know, Big Tobacco or something? Um, and, yeah, yeah, he's, I think I've seen, like, I think in this movie, I would say there's probably, like, 30 minutes of, uh, of McConaughey's naked butt. Like there, there's scenes where he's like swimming, swimming naked that, you know, are from the front of him that there should be no reason that we see his butt. But like he's in a position that seems like clearly designed for us to like have his butt is sharing the screen with his face. Right. <laughs> like, I, I mean, yeah, this is a very strange movie. This is a movie where Matthew McConaughey has to utter the line with a straight face. Um, I'm a hooker, but with no hooks. <laughs> um, it's so strange. The The twist ending is, I think, the only really interesting thing about this film. And you could hear HT talk about that in the podcast last week. Uh, and honestly, I even though I didn't like this movie, I think people should see this movie because it's so, <laughs> it's so strange and weird. Um I wish I, actually I was I was wondering about your reaction, Peter, because when I was watching it, I had no idea what the twist was going in. And I wondered after the fact whether like knowing the twist or knowing that there even was a twist would take the wind out of the sails for this movie, because I feel like 99 percent of my experience of just like, I don't know, of being like entertained or being flabbergasted by this film <laughs> was just not knowing the twist and experiencing that twist. Yeah. I, so I, for I, you, did that work? I, I do think it, it lost a little for me knowing what it was, but I, there are uh, 
I don't want like to get complaints about spoilers, so I'm I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible. But you know, like any good twist in a movie, not that this is a good twist, um, <laughs> there are setups along the way. So knowing it, I was able to see like these kind of like hints towards it early on, if that makes sense. So I think I got mm-hmm. that out of it, where maybe you didn't. Um, but uh, you know, when the twist actually happened, my theater. By the by the way, my theater was, um, I want to say like seventy five percent full. I was surprised. I thought I was going to get there and I was going to be like the only one seeing this movie because I, I, I don't know anybody that was excited to see Serenity. Um, and when the point got to the twist, oh, I should say the twist comes very late in the film. And I want to say about halfway through the movie, like 20% of my audience walked out. <laughs> like <laughs> like they, it was like a, a bad, like when you're at Sundance or a film festival and it's a bad movie, you'll usually see that, like that's more typical of happening. But I don't usually see that a lot at a normal movie in a multiplex. People had enough with this movie before the twist and then when the twist happened like i looked around the theater and people were just in disbelief and people were like laughing and it was i don't know it was really strange uh it it um people started leaving then too and um i i I kind of i think the twist in this movie is interesting and i wish almost the movie was about that i wish like the twist happened like 30 or 40 minutes into the movie and then the movie explore that in a way and i can't say what way because i feel like that'd be giving up too much but um hc i know you talked about this movie last week um but for people that didn't listen to that episode because it you know had a clearly kind of spoiler-ish title to it uh what did you think of serenity i thought it was a baffling film (laughs) and (laughs) i thought that um it wasn't good but it's sheer audacity of that twist and coming out of nowhere with something that was completely out of left field, but also ludicrous and ridiculous gave me a little respect for it, even though it was, does not work on any level. (laughs) So yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more than you just because I was like, I don't know why this is happening or what is happening, but I'm kind of along for the ride. But yeah, it's, it's such a strange movie. I don't know how two Oscar winners are in this film and they're giving it their all too. Like they deliver each line with uh, the most dedication. I just want to say that when we published HG's review, I wanted to go submit the Rotten Tomatoes, and I said, HG, is this a positive, negative review? And we had, and she had to really think about it. We, we ended up going, we ended up giving it a fresh uh, rating, but she, but we had to really think about whether this was a rotten or fresh movie. It was, it's one of those kinds of decisions that was just like, it's not clear what this is. We have no idea what this movie is. Yes, I I, I didn't know, and I, I honestly don't know if that was the right decision. I just, I think that, <laughs> yes, because it's just so out there. I'm fine with that fresh rating. Um, but I remember, I think last time when we were talking about this, Peter, you asked if I could recommend, if I would recommend this to anyone. And I said, I will recommend this to someone with an AMC A-list. <laughs> yeah. No. And the thing is, I would recommend people see this. Maybe not in the theaters. Maybe wait. Yeah. If you have A-list, then maybe, you know, waste your time in theater. But, you know, wait until it's on HBO or something, Netflix. But even though I don't think I would even get this, give this a rating that's like maybe like four out of ten. <laughs> Like, which is not a good rating. I think people should see this movie because it's just so insane. It's so insane that this exists. Like, I, like you need to see it to believe it. 
Um, but after that, I saw The Kid Who Would Be King. This is another movie I kind of wasn't interested in seeing. Uh, the only reason I wanted to see this movie is it's the it's directed by Joe Cornish. This is his follow-up to Attack the Block, which I loved. Um, and it's kind of a shame that it's taken him this long to do a follow-up. Uh, this movie is... Uh, it feels like a movie that was ripped out of the 1980s. like the Kind of like a kid adventure film. Uh, like I guess like Never Ending Story or maybe the Goonies? I don't know. Um, it's it hard. gave me some Goonie vibes. Yeah, it's hard to describe. Uh, and... Like, okay, so the storyline is that, uh, you know, the Arthurian legend was true, and uh, Arthur's sword has laid somewhere in England, you know, in a stone, and uh, the evil witch Morgana, is that correct? I think Morgana, yes. uh, would someday come back to, to, to this world, and there would be another. Uh, person like arthur arthur to pull the sword from the stone and take on that mantle of you know trying to vanquish that evil and it ends up being this kid who am i correct that this is andy circus's son it is that's so strange it doesn't look anything like andy circus um and this movie is it's cute it's charming it's very likable but for me, maybe it was too much of a kid's movie. Like, it doesn't play kind of like... You know how, like, Pixar movies kind of play for both audiences? They play for kids, but also adults. I feel like this plays a little too much to the kids and not enough to the adults. Um, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I'm also not a huge fantasy guy, or I, and I don't love the Arthurian legend and that kind of stuff. And uh, but HT, what what did you think of the movie? I actually enjoyed this a lot more than you. Um, I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised by this film because, like you said, it kind of has that spirit of the '80s uh, kid adventure without being set in the '80s, and that's something I really appreciated because I feel like we're getting a lot of. Uh, movies and shows that try to recapture that and well and have they kind of have to be set in the 80s to uh, bring that nostalgia but I think that this one kind of has that sense of nostalgia without explicitly you know delivering the 80s nostalgia and um, that's something that I really enjoyed just like how earnest and straightforward of a family children's adventure film this was and uh, it just reminded me of films that I enjoyed when I was a kid and I kept thinking throughout this movie that if I were 10 years old again, I would probably be watching this movie a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I 100% so agree with that statement. Like mm -hmm. if I, if I saw this as a kid, this would be on repeat. Yeah. And uh, I do have to say, um, Rebecca Ferguson plays Morgana, which was a surprise to me. I was like, Oh, what's she doing in this movie? Um, and she is also just giving, um, her all and is surprisingly sexy in it too. I was like, wow, she's wearing like a skin tight suit and kind of writhing around in this children's film. And, um, the guy who plays Merlin is also doing a lot. Um, I, he just, he, he has, this I, face I, I, I didn't like, like it. I did not. Yeah. And it's weird too, because like he's playing a young version of Merlin, but like it switches between an older version of Merlin played by, uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. Mm -hmm. And I almost wish it was just Sir Patrick Stewart as Merlin. 
Yeah. I mean, I like Patrick Stewart in that too, but I did kind of like what the young Merlin was doing. And um, he was just, he looks very weird too. He looks kind of like that typical British um, teen actor, but just like stretched out. And um, he was, I have to say, just like giving this very bizarre, very offbeat performance that I kind of admired. So I, I thought it was a little weird, but I liked it for like this kind of movie that it was. And um, yeah, I, I actually like this movie um, quite a bit. Yeah, um, I feel like the nitpicky side of me also got to me a little bit. Like, I understand that like a movie like Goonies has tons of problems if you look at it as adults, but I I saw it as a kid, right? Yeah. And this movie like has like things like like King Arthur's sword is found in like the concrete of like a building that's being destroyed. I'm like, how did it get there? Like, this is not well explained. <laughs> um and then like fantasy peter uh, yeah but like why not put it in like an actual rock somewhere that or like some kind of like dig site or make it more make sense like like merlin in the first 10 minutes of the movie i think merlin appears and he needs to get to this place that's like far away so he convince convinces these two cops to drive him there right and Mm -hmm. then when the the cops drive away he turns into an owl and then flies into the school I'm like, if you could turn it to the owl, why did you need to convince two cops to drive you to the school? Because <laughs> you need a good comedic bit to keep the kids interested. I don't know. It, it's just I know I know that's ridiculous to criticize. I I, to- I totally understand that the, it's ridiculous to criticize this movie on that level, but to me it was like the logic of the movie did not make sense to me. <laughs> but. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I felt like I brushed off a lot of the logic just because it's kind of the nature of the kid adventure film where it's from, like, the perspective almost of the kids and, like, you kind of just brushed through it. Like, they're in a lot of mortal danger at all times. I'm surprised none of them got impaled by, like, swords (laughs) or pieces of rebar, but it was just, like, kind of fun and frolicking type of movie. I liked it. It seems like HG liked it a little bit more than me, but I think we both agree. If you have kids, this is a film that you should probably go see while it's still in theaters because I, I bet you it's going to be one of those films that's like out, you know, in theaters for like a week before, you know, sadly. Um, but uh, what else did I watch this week? Uh, last night, two of my friends, Tim and Jeff, convinced me to go over their house and watch Royal Rumble live with them. Um I used to be a wrestling fan during the Attitude Era. So that's like, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s. So I haven't really watched wrestling since then. But back then I owned a wrestling website uh, called WrestleNet. Um, so I was a big wrestle fan, a wrestling fan. I kind of got away from it. I kind of do not watch it. I have uh, watched a couple WrestleMania since then, but I'm kind of one of those weird guys that like, you know, just comes and hangs out with friends to watch, you know, that one of like kind of Super Bowl of wrestling event, not understanding any of the storylines. But and that's only been like the last time we did that was a couple years ago. So it's been a while. Um, Royal Rumble was always one of my favorite wrestling pay-per-views because what it is, is this it's this 30, like 30 people get a number at random supposedly in the in the storyline okay i'm talking in the storyline guys uh they get a number at random and 
in the beginning, the first two people come to the ring and they start fighting. And then every traditionally every two minutes, another the next number gets pulled and that person goes to the ring. And basically, it's whoever is the last man standing at the end uh, to get eliminated. You get thrown over the top rope and your both of your feet have to touch the the mat outside the ring. Uh, and basically, the last person at the end of the Royal Rumble who is left standing in the ring gets a title shot uh, against the world champion at WrestleMania, which is basically like the Super Bowl of wrestling. So it, it's it's kind of like this big deal. And it's always a, a fun match to watch because there's fun things you can do with it. Uh, I was surprised to learn this year, uh, and I guess they did this, they started doing this last year, but they didn't have just one Royal Rumble, but they had two. Uh, they had one for the men and one for the women. WWE recently kind of really invested themselves in their women's division. Back when I watched wrestling, it was really bad. Um, they were called divas, and uh, they were very sexualized. And um, at any given time in the women's division, I think there was probably only two to four women wrestlers like it wasn't really a big division. It was basically whoever was feuding at the time over the world title. Um, it was kind of a joke, and I think most wrestling fans thought of it as a joke. And it was sad because when there was a women's match during a Raw or a pay per view, you would see this max mass exodus of people going to the bathroom in the crowd. Like it, it was really really sad. Um, but it seems like now they've really taken it up a notch. Like they actually have a lot of competitors. They had 30 people in this woman uh, Royal Rumble and uh, some some good wrestlers. And it, it like really seems like the wrestling fans are really into it now, which is uh, which I'm kind of happy about. And um, I uh, what else was I surprised about here? Uh now, before, you used to watch wrestling pay-per-views on pay-per-view. You would have to spend, like, 60 bucks to rent it on uh, your pay-per-view service on your cable company. Now, WWE has their own network, which you can get on any, like, set-top box and basically subscribe for, like, a monthly fee. So it's a lot less uh, to get in. And back, back in the day, pay-per-views didn't have any commercial breaks. Now that they have a network the the pay-per-views have commercial breaks which is actually kind of strange for me um and uh what else uh they they changed the Royal rumble intervals from two minutes to 90 minutes but i think that was just to keep it down but th- th- this pay-per-view i think was like five hours long it, it like really wore at me like i back in the day back in the day when i you know had to <laughs> you know uh walk uphill through the snow to school and you know all that bullshit um the the pay-per-views were three hours now it's almost double that it's kind of um it's too much for me uh it, it it's still fun seeing there's like wrestlers like kofi kingston who do these like insane stunts where they're like thrown over the top rope and they're able to like hop on one foot and you know run on the railing and somehow get back into the ring without touching both of their feet on the mat and uh that's always i think one of the things that makes the royal rumbles fun um the other interesting thing was in the royal rumble this year and i'm probably talking too much about wrestling and we're gonna get complaints here uh i promise this is not gonna be a thing because i i'm not that enthused about wrestling but uh in the men's royal rumble uh during it, um, 
a one of the woman wrestlers came out uh and her name's Nia something. She's a cousin of The Rock. And she basically beat up the person who was coming down to the ring, ran into the ring, started clearing house. Um, and this is actually kind of a surprise because usually WWE, um, because of, you know, the the possible politically correct pitfalls of this, does not allow women and men to wrestle together. Um I think it's been many years since a man has done anything physical to a woman in the ring in WWE, at least according to my friends there that were explaining everything while we were watching it. So it was kind of a surprise to see her come up there. And it like for a few seconds there, it almost seemed like she was going to win the Royal Rumble and go on to WrestleMania for it to be a, uh, you know, a, a mixed gender fight for the world title, which would have been incredible. Uh, sadly, they didn't go in that direction. Um, some guy named Seth Rollins won and is going uh, to WrestleMania to fight the champion. Um, but it was a fun night. I, I think I think I would have enjoyed it more if it was like three hours long. But it's really interesting to see how the world of wrestling is kind of catching up to, you know, to Hollywood in this kind of like, you know, era where people actually want to see you know women represented in in this for even this form of entertainment which i think is very testosterone testosterone driven um jacob you you sometimes watch wrestling a little bit right i don't watch it but i have friends who are really into it and they keep me apprised as to what's going on because i find it fascinating i find the world of wrestling fascinating i find the idea of how it works fascinating i find the idea of um of how the storylines work and how these people are actors, stuntmen, you know, and soap opera actors, more or less all at the same time. It's it all, I find, I, I, there's nothing more satisfying to me than hearing somebody who's really, really smart, like, and knows how it works, talk about wrestling. And I've, I know I'm lucky to know a few people like that and have even a few of our writers on the site are like that and have written before us before. And you're right, you're right, Peter. Wrestling is really, really changing. Like, there's a wrestler who's very popular named Daniel Bryan, who recently came back from a very serious injury, and he's a heel now. He's a villain, but his whole shtick is that he is a uh, super liberal, working class defender of of millennials who hates baby boomers. And his big heel speech uh, in, in the ring a few weeks ago went viral on Twitter, where I watched it was him staring down Vince McMahon, the head of WWE, the founding guy, the big main villain of the show, and just for two minutes, he went on the most angry rant imaginable about how baby boomers have destroyed the world and how he's going to destroy WWE because of how Vince McMahon and his kind have destroyed America and the world and our, and, and, and business and, and nature. And at first, the crowd's booing a little bit because, like, yeah, he's the heel. Then they, you hear him kind of stop booing, like, oh, he actually really believes this. He's probably right. And it's, like, a really <laughs> fascinating, amazing moment where, like, the, the heel of the show is, like, turned into this hugely super liberal political guy who really has a point. Wrestling is fascinating. I'll never watch it. I don't want to sit down for five hours to watch Royal Rumble. But, like, watching clips of certain moments remind me that this is a fascinating thing. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. HT, have you ever watched wrestling? I have never in my life never. watched wrestling. Okay. You're probably better off for it. But um, <laughs> but I do think there is some enjoyment there. And uh, definitely when you get on the level of, I think, what you're talking about your friends, and that was the level I was on, where you're kind of tracking the stuff that's going on behind the scenes that's influencing the stuff you're seeing on screen. And, like, 
there's some really interesting stuff of like you know what what is happening that actually is real versus what is planned and that what is real actually stuff like that happens way more often than you think on these shows and it's it's very it's a very fascinating uh look if if you're like following like you know the wrestling observer and pro wrestling torch and all those kind of like publications uh, it's, it's 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 fun to watch it on that level i think even though it's fun to watch it on the level of you're just believing the storylines but i think it's fun to watch it from uh more of an educated standpoint um but uh that is all that i've been watching uh Chickup, what have you been watching this week well since i didn't watch any movies uh, i watched continue my our marathon of game of thrones my wife and we watch it every single year and we are just we just started season four and so far, this, still love Game of Thrones. I think season one holds up. Season two holds up. Season three has a massively terrible subplot, but still holds up. And, of course, season three ends with one of the most tragic episodes in TV history. I still remember watching it and reading it for the first time and being shaken to my core. And, like, it's still upsetting all these years later. But uh, entering season four, it's where the show is at its absolute best. I mean, season four... Uh, I mean, season three ends with so many main cast members dying, uh, and season four kind of feels like refreshed and all the better for it. And season four is also adapting the back half of the best book, which is the best part of that book. So season four is just Game of Thrones at its absolute best. It's never better than this, and so much goodness in season four. I'm, I'm thrilled to keep on watching it. You know, and I'm getting a lot of ideas. So as we get closer to um, Game of Thrones returning for its final season. I'll be having some stuff to write about on slashfilm.com. I'm brainstorming some ideas about lists and articles and things I want things that would spurred up by this rewatch. Uh, and so, are, we, are, are we going to have a game, game of Thrones writers' room episode of the podcast? Oh, m- maybe. I mean, uh, I know Brad watched it. No, yeah. Ben watched it. So, I, I definitely, I definitely think I want to do a, a ranking of the seasons for sure because I think, like I said, I think undoubtedly season four is the best, but. If Brad and Ben disagree, um, you know, we maybe we have a fight. It's like season five is the worst. I, I could go, uh, that's how I feel right now. Is season four is the best, season five is the worst, and the rest will fall as I see fit. But if, if we need to... But I feel like that's a, even too broad. Like, what about, like, the best episodes? Best and worst well, episodes? Man, my concern there is that um, Game of Thrones is so heavily serialized. I'm worried that some episodes may not stand out. But yeah, it, it, you know what? Let's. I'll, I'll talk to Ben and Brad off mic about this, and if they're interested in doing a, a ranking of all, or not a ranking, but a a top ten best episodes, um, you know, let's go for it. Like I know for Screen Crush years and years ago, I did a ranking of every single Game of Thrones character, which <laughs> at the time was 144 characters, and by now it's probably close to 200. So that's probably the most extreme thing I've ever written about anything. Um, it's probably still hanging out online somewhere if you Google Game of Thrones characters ranked or whatever or Game of Thrones characters ranked Screen Crush. But that was right. I mean, I I think when I was back when I was writing about Game of Thrones, I did a ranking of all the Game of Thrones wigs. So there's plenty of things you can write about it. Uh, worst Game of Thrones subplot number one: Theon being tortured for season three for ten episodes, and it's terrible. Um, okay, Game of Thrones. It's still a good show. It's still very good. Uh, speaking of TV, and it should I be watched... mentioned by the way that uh, on our site, uh, who was it? Was it Cre- who was the person who ranked every Quentin Tarantino character ever? I think there was like 120 characters. Oh, that was me. That was you. Okay, so it was you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that was your close. Thing, Jacob. Yeah, I did that one. I also did. Uh, I ranked every single kill in the Friday Thirteenth series, which is like 169. So, 
Back to the back before I back before I was an editor, back when I had time to write more more than I do now, I used to do these crazy, very long rankings. But now I, I don't have the time to spend eight hours on a single article. <laughs> uh, so maybe I'll have to make Ben do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we we'll but, link to those prior articles that we just mentioned in the show notes. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, but I watched the season finale of The Good Place. Uh, HT, you watched this too, right? Yes, it's so good. It had a surprising just emotional gut punch at the end. I guess it's not surprising considering how this show uh, is such is so like emotion and empathy heavy, but I don't think it's ever gone quite as tragic as it did in this episode. Um, you want to talk about it, Jacob? It's a little bit. I think I know I've seen a lot of people having mixed feelings on it, and I think that uh, uh, I think Alan Steppenwall nailed it, the writer of Rolling Stone, TV writer of Rolling Stone, which said that it depends on how you feel about a certain couple in the show, if you buy them as a couple and if they matter to you. And they matter to me a lot. And after the extreme high concept uh, episode 11 of the season uh, last week, which was the funniest, strangest episode of the series and had so many great concepts flying around, this episode was very stripped down, almost no visual effects, almost no high concepts, just a relationship put in a very, very tough place and tested in a way that I found very upsetting and very moving. And... And I was ultimately really put in a place where I had to really consider the the ethics of the situation, which is what the good place is all about. I mean, that, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a show. It's been about at first it kind of paid lip service in the first early episodes about this is a show about people learning to be good people, but after three seasons, it has become such a profoundly um, complex and warm and thoughtful deconstruction of how human beings function. That like when you listen to the, if you listen to the Good Place podcast, which is uh, features regular people from the show, writers, uh, actors, producers, all talk about the show. Like the show is inspiring, like um, philosophy classes and philosophy papers being written all over the world. I mean, it's it is not like it does not treat its subject matter lightly, and I think this episode really puts its characters in a in a very very hard ethical position and asks them to make the right choice, and I think they do, even though it's the hard one. What do you think, HD? Oh yeah, definitely, and um, it's it's just such a such a hu- uh, character driven human moment in this um, one. Like it is about the ethics, but for me, the the reason that it spoke so powerfully was because it was about these just like two people who were who had to make do something right despite making like it being a very great personal sacrifice. And um, I absolutely loved it, and um, they made Jeremy bear me like. Kind of heartbreaking. I really want a Jeremy Bear Me t-shirt. I don't, I don't wear t-shirts with writing on them, but I will wear a Jeremy Bear Me t-shirt if NBC makes one. I've Googled it. There's not one yet. But NBC, please make a Jeremy Bear Me t-shirt. Uh, I also watched a new episode of True Detective. This is the fourth episode of the season. And I'm not sure if this is a controversial opinion or not, but Nick Pizzolatto needs to collaborate more because this episode was co-written with David Milch, the creator of Deadwood and one of the main writers producers on NYPD Blue, one of the most famous and claimed TV writers of all time. And this episode was sharp as hell. The screenplay was funny. The dialogue was like was like just rat-a-tat. Uh, the pacing felt right. Uh, Nick Pizzolatto actually directed it too. But I feel like in season two, Nick Pizzolatto famously was heavy-handed over the entire season, and that season is such a disaster in ways I enjoy but not but most people hate. Whereas season one saw him butting heads with Kerry Joji Fukunaga, the director, constantly, but produced an amazing season of TV. And True Detective Season 3 has been good so far, but I don't think it's a surprise that the episode that was the only episode of the season that was co-written with another writer, a veteran TV writer 
who really knows the genre and knows cop shows well, I do not think it is a coincidence that it is an incredible hour of TV and is the best episode of True Detective since season one. Are you guys following this season at all? I haven't. I just have not been able to catch this new season. Yeah, I I haven't watched since season one, and I was not even, like, I know everybody was, like, glowing about that, and I thought some of it was good, but I was not a huge fan. I think this. I think Nick Pizzolatto needs a writer's room. I know he's a novelist by by trade, and he comes from TV from that background of being the solo tortured artist. But TV benefits from having a room of people around you and collaborators to push against you and work with you. And I feel like between David Milch's contributions here and the friction of Fukunaga in season one, I think Pizzolatto is a very, very, very smart writer uh, who needs somebody to push against. I, I think he needs it. And if season four is ever made, I think HBO should put a writer's room around him. Sounds like a good idea. Um, HT, aside from Serenity and the kid who would be king, what else have you been watching this week? Um, I'm watching Jane the Virgin. I'm going to be continuing to beat my CW uh, TV show, Jerome, and uh, now represent Jane the Virgin, which is another unfortunately named, smartly written CW series that I don't don't think gets its due. Um, Jane the Virgin stars... uh, Gina Rodriguez as the title character who um, in the series, which is based off of a telenovela of the same name, um, is stars as a woman who gets accidentally inseminated and um, she is a virgin, so she's never had sex before. And it kind of throws a wrench into her plans to become a novelist and marry the love of her life. So it's this really fun sort of tongue-in-cheek take on like soap operas and that whole telenovela genre uh, while being um, having these really great characters at the center of it. Uh, Gina Rodriguez is just so fun and so charming. And it often just kind of, kind of lampshades everything about this genre. The entire series, for example, is, is uh, narrated by, um, in the subtitles, he's called The Sex Latin lover. So um, he will basically like talk about the plot, but also um, make references to whatever rom-com trope is happening. Like, for example, Jane and uh, one of her love interests gets stuck in an elevator and the narrator goes, this is that classic rom-com trope called stuck in an elevator. And it's really (laughs) fun. And um, I'm now currently on season uh, three. I was watching it for a while and then kind of dropped off. But I'm catching up for its fifth and final season uh, makes its way to the air this March. And um, this is it's kind of sad because I feel like CW is kind of ending a golden era of, um, again, unfortunately named but smartly written shows. Yeah. Uh, Jane the Virgin and CW are both closing out their final seasons this year, and they're both so good and so smart. But I'm excited to see um, where Gina Rodriguez's uh, career goes from here because she is just blooming on the big screen. And um, while she is kind of becoming more of like the tough girl role on the big screen, it's such, it's a big it's a dramatic leap from what she's playing in uh, Jane the Virgin, who is a really sweet and really um, strong minded. Uh, individual and uh gets into a lot of shenanigans so i'm excited to see um to catch up with this season and uh just see where gina rodriguez goes from here very cool um we let's move on to what we've been eating i wanted to recommend this app uh lately i i'm a maniac who on a diet weighs myself every morning uh and you know if (laughs) 
<laughs> my body weight goes up even a little. Like, you know, I, like, really uh, internalize the, uh, you know, I, I beat myself down. Um, but, you know, obviously, if you're going to weigh yourself every day, it's going to fluctuate. It's going to go up and down, up and down. And uh, eventually, obviously, you know, you're going to have this downward curve. I was able to find this app that I wanted to recommend people who are, are dieting. It's called Happy Scale. And I, it's at least on the iPhone apps, uh, app store. I'm not sure if it's on Android. Um, but basically, uh, this will tell you a bunch of things. It, it does a ton of features. Like, it will give you your weight loss trends, like how, mu- how much you've lost in the last seven days, how much you've lost in the last 30 days, you know, how much you've lost in the last 90 days. It will, um, but the thing I like about it is it kind of gives you a moving average. So it will show me what my 10-day best is for the lowest weight, but it will also show me like what the average is. So if one day my, my weight spikes up by like a pound and a half, which can happen and has happened, um, you know, that won't be affected that greatly by the moving average. The moving average is averaging, you know, the last seven days of like what it is. And it, it, it's a lot easier to see that. And also the app has like these milestones. Uh, so you always feel like, feel like you're, coming close to a smaller goal than like your end goal um jacob i know you aren't doing uh you're not weighing yourself you have a whole different method which i totally respect because this method of weighing yourself every day can 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 eat at you sometimes (laughs) uh but but i love this app so i want to recommend that to uh to anybody out there that is also on our our adventure with us um I also went to AMC theaters uh, this past week to see those two movies, and I was surprised to see that they've started adding some low carb snacks. Like they've added like these cheese crisps, and um, it's not like anything like groundbreaking, but uh, it's kind of crazy that keto is kind of blowing up to the point that like you know the biggest movie theater chain in the U.S. is now you know, adopting options other than, you know, eating a hot dog without the bun, which is not uh, something I would recommend to anybody, but it's something you could do. Um, Jacob, what is, what is the struggle been like for you recently? The day was a really rough day because uh, as my Instagram followers, all barely any of you know, um, I'm trying to take, you know, photographs of myself in a, in a goal shirt every few, every week, as opposed to weighing myself. Uh, and today's, uh, sure picture was so negligible over last week. I signed down to post it, which threw me into like sort of a panic attack. Of, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And the answer is, the answer is probably nothing. The answer is, you know, you're not going to have huge noticeable differences every week. Um, that's the downside to not weighing myself. Cause I know I, I thought I, I'm going to obsess either way. I think I'd rather obsess over <laughs> fitting in a shirt and obsessing over yeah. numbers. That's where I, where I'm sitting right now. But yeah, I, I wish they would have more um, low carb snacks down here in Austin because the draft house is a nightmare of, of freak for keto people there is you can get a hamburger without a bun but it still costs you 15 bucks um and it's just like they used to have pork rinds on the menu years ago and they were delicious like really in-house made pork rinds served still warm and they were wonderful but nope those are gone too so uh i really really wish that there was better options down here and i wish i would kill for some cheese crisps or for some wings that weren't made with tons of flour if you go to your wing place make sure you don't have flour in the mix because that'll screw you yeah yeah but I, I will recommend, though, uh, Strive Cake Mix. 
I, I bought this at a specialized grocery store called, uh, not specialized, but a little bit more niche grocery store called Central Market here in Austin. And this is a cake mix that is will make you three carb, three net carb cupcakes. And if you make them right, they, they can dry out pretty easily if you're not careful. If, um, if you make them just moist and get them perfectly baked, uh, they taste really, really delicious. And so you can have a cupcake for three carbs. And my wife, uh, being a very smart person, took some cream cheese, took some um, baking chocolate, uh, which uh, and some um, strive sugar, and mixed it all together. Um, did some some of her magic and created a one carb chocolate frosting. So we now have a four carb dessert <laughs> that tastes really really good. Uh, I mean, like if I had a strive cupcake a month ago when I wasn't dieting, I'm like, oh, this is kind of an okay cupcake. But what, a month into a diet, it tastes like a cupcake you would eat. You know, a mu- uh, when you aren't on a diet because you you're your body is adjusted to not having sugar, so a diet <laughs> cupcake tastes like a real cupcake. So Strive, I'm not sure where it's being stocked elsewhere outside of Austin, but you know, check online, check your local stores. Uh, it's been a lifesaver. Yeah, I'm sure it's on Amazon or something. Uh, I would also recommend if you haven't tried it, Jacob, uh, there's a company called Good D's. It's run by this lady named D. Uh, produces a bunch of baking mixes that are low sugar, low carb, and I love the uh, blondies and brownies, and they're oh my god, they're so good. Um, oh. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend that to anybody out there. It's also on uh, this adventure with us. Um, Ht, uh, you know, Brad's not here this week to talk about <clears throat> the good things he's been eating to offset all this dieting talk. So what what have you been eating? So I'm continuing my adventures in Vietnamese cooking. And um, in my Instant Pot this week, I made a Vietnamese dessert called uh, which is a uh, sweet rice pudding with black-eyed peas, which sounds weird. But it's um, just think of it like you know, there's bread pudding and everything. So this is with uh, this is kind of a pudding made with sweet rice, black-eyed peas, and a coconut sauce. And um, it's a common Vietnamese um, dessert that I made in my Instant Pot so that it would accompany my uh, cousins in New York, uh, Zol, um dinner, which is, um, I talked about them before, it's the death anniversary for our relatives and ancestors that we um, occasionally hold in their honor. And this was my uncle's uh, death anniversary. And um, we had a dinner at my cousin's apartment where we all made some Vietnamese dish. Um, Three out of these cousins are all work in restaurants, so I was a little nervous about making something for all of them. But uh, I followed a instant pot recipe that my mom made for me and uh, made this dessert, and it was a hit. And it's real. It was I probably used a little too much sugar, but it was delicious and sweet and gooey and um, all kinds of good stuff. I wish I could try it. Sounds good. Um, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, you've been playing a lot of uh, tabletop games this week? Yeah, I actually had uh, two board game nights, which was really fun. Uh, first night, we played a bunch of games I've talked about before on the show, but I also played a game I just picked up called Treasure Island, which is recommended by my favorite board game website, Shut Up and Sit Down. It gave a glowing review, so I figured I'd check it out. And this game was a blast. My entire group loved it. And as the name implies, uh, it's based very loosely on Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Treasure Island novel, where one player is Black... Not Blackbeard, I'm sorry, uh, Long John Silver. They've been in prison. The crew is mutinied, and they've locked up Long John Silver and put him in an island on, on, on the island. Sorry, in a, in a prison on the island. And 
on his on, long silver has a little map in front of him, a little dry erase map, a glossy dry erase map. He gets a little marker and draws an X on his map, a tiny X to mark where he's hidden the treasure. And the rest of the crew has a set number of days and turns to find the treasure. And the board itself is also dry erase. So they can interrogate Long John Silver. Long John Silver can give out clues. Uh, and he's allowed to lie twice in the game about certain clues, which he marks with tokens. Every time he puts down, he lies. Every time he t- tells a hint, he puts down a token face down. And two of those tokens are allowed to be lies. So players can be, don't know which ones are lies and which ones aren't. And the way it works is they'll be told, like, you know, it's north of this. It's south of this. It is not in this area. It is within three miles of this. And you literally use dry erase markers, compasses, rulers, and other various tools to draw on the board and mark off the board where you have uh, been, where you don't think it is, where it could be. And by the end of the game, the, the map is just this mess of scribbles and notes. And the area, and it's as long, I was playing long, I played long to silver. So I'm watching like the group narrow in and narrow in and narrow and cross off more and more of the board and get closer and closer and closer. And it's very, very intense to play uh, long to silver because you're watching them get closer to your treasure. Because at the end of the game, long to silver can escape from prison and head for his treasure. If he gets there first, because he knows where it is, he wins the game. Otherwise, what's really fun is that the entire group's working together to find the treasure. They're constantly sharing hints. They're sharing um, what they've learned. But they're also allowed to lie to each other, because whoever finds the treasure first is the only winner. So the group works together as long as much as they can until it becomes dis- dis- until it becomes a bad choice to do so. So it's really, really fun for Long John Silver, because he's watching this entire team work against him Unfi- uh, um, find his treasure, narrow it down, and then in the last few rounds, all the other pirates turn against each other and start like withholding information and saying, "I'm not going to help you. I need to find the treasure." So it ends up, it's a really, really fun, dramatic, funny game. So you're always laughing, even even as you're like getting frustrated because you don't know where to find the treasure. Uh, Peter, have you played this at all? I have not played this, but I watched the shut down, uh, shut, shut up and sit down uh, review of this, and they actually said the opposite that like when it gets close to uh, the end of the game that the people start working together more because they don't want you to win. Oh no! It's For like, me, it was the exact no, opposite. It's the exact opposite. <laughs> Everybody was super on board being a team when it started. By the end, it was cutthroat, and nobody wanted to help each other. Um, I totally want to play this game. This sounds totally up my alley. And uh, how does it like? Is it kind of fiddly with? Because like, you're writing with, like, uh, what do you call those? Write erase like markers on like this board. Is that yeah, like? It w- it was at first, but we'll get the hang of it pretty quickly. Um, it, I, I found it very forgiving. Everybody has their own personal little board uh, and with, with smaller measurement tools, and there's a bigger set to use on the board itself. And once we got the hang of it, we had no problems with it. I mean, the, the big issue is that certain colored markers don't show up on the board as well as the black. So if you want to like, mark your own – like, for example, if you were playing as the orange character and you use the orange marker to mark where you've been – doesn't show up as well. And one solution is to go buy more black markers, but you can't, you know, distinguish which lines are yours. And it ultimately matters, you know, how much do you want to squint? And we ultimately, we're totally fine with the marker situation. Yeah. Um, what else have you been playing? Uh, a, my brother-in-law hosted a game of Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. And this is uh, a game in Fantasy Flight Games. is a very large library of, of Call of Cthulhu games based on H.P. Lovecraft's, you know, horror work. They have a whole family of games. You have the Ark- Arkham Horror, the Arkham Horror card game, um, a few others and then whose names are escaping me. And I mentioned Madness is a very interesting thing. It's the first edition was essentially a dungeon crawler where a group of people plays investigators exploring a mansion that's being built as they explore various rooms or mansion or dungeon, whatever you want to call it. And one player plays all the monsters and threats and creatures in the mansion and then places that 
is the evil itself, like throwing things at them, making it harder for them, throwing up roadblocks, fighting them with monsters. And second edition uh, takes away the player playing the mastermind and replaces them with an app. It's a fully cooperative game now where an, you pick an adventure and the mobile app is played on an I- iPad, preferably, will tell you um, which room to build next, will add NPC characters you can talk to, will randomly introduce threats. Anytime you play a mission, it'll change the layout of the map so it always gets fresh. You're never playing the same thing twice. And as somebody who really liked who liked but didn't love first edition, but always liked playing as a mastermind, I was wary of that role being replaced by an app. But we played a four and a half hour game of this. It's a long game. Uh, and we had a, I had so much fun. Uh, there's some storytelling weirdness that happens because you know the app is randomly generating a lot of things. So certain things don't make sense or don't line up. Um, you kind of have to roll with it. Um, but being able to completely co-op with your team well, this app just throws nightmares at you. It throws monsters at you and, like, throws left balls and, and, and throws, throws curve balls and left turns. I had a great, We had a great time. And uh, I'm not so sure if I'm going to rush to go pick this up for myself yet, especially since my brother-in-law has it. And I, I can go play it with him whenever I want to. Yeah. Uh, but it is a very expensive game. But it is – but it's Fantasy Flight Games always puts out a nice product. It looks great on the table. And the app, which is, you know, free to download if you, uh, and you see the game to play it. Uh, really does a really fantastic job of raising the tension and keeping you on edge. Uh, Peter, have you played this one? Yeah, see, I had the first edition, and it was so hard to play. Like, it was very fiddly, and that, that the person who, what is it, like the dungeon master or whatever it is that's running it, it was a very intense job. Like, you had to know all the rules and bits and stuff like that. Um, the second edition, I think, might be one of my favorite games of all time at this point. Uh, I like board games that tell stories like this feels like I I guess it feels like a video game in that you're exploring this mansion and and things are happening and you're trying to uncover a mystery. And uh, there's different scenarios that have different stories and uh, they kind of, I think, uh, connect together a little bit. Um, But some of them are interesting, like some like one of them I played, there was like people around the mansion and it was almost like you had to. Uh, it was like a game of Clue. You had to like fi- like go and talk to people and figure out like who was responsible for something, and then you know something bad happens and like uh, some uh, c- uh, cultists come out. And I don't know what wh- whatever happens, um, but it- it's a lot of fun. I, I just it, uh, yeah, and sometimes accidentally really funny. Like my character was the millionaire, and he was during the game he went he he went one direction out um, down the ho- down the alleyway. Everybody else went the other direction, and they were fighting monsters and shooting things, getting gun battles, getting beaten to hell. And my guy was walking in the diners, walking to businesses, and like having a great time, just collecting goods, getting like getting, uh, finding weapons, learning information, and having no fights, which sounds like it should be boring, but ended up being hilarious because it was, you gotta imagine like the cross cutting between the the group in a massive gun battle with monsters screaming getting torn apart cut to their their friend down the street in the diner just chatting to the waitress learning about the night and it was just really really funny in a way the game didn't intend but because the alchemy of it ended up being really entertaining very cool uh, what, what else have you been playing uh the i've been playing the nintendo switch version of carcassonne carcassonne is a very famous at this point european style board game of play, laying tiles and building communities in the french countryside building roads uh building abbeys it's a classic it's a generally great game and 
I I picked up the digital version. Of it. It's on Nintendo Switch for twenty bucks, which is half the price of the physical version. And while I won't be giving up my physical copy anytime soon because I still love it, this is a really really strong implementation of the game. I mean, if you want if you want to just like crash on a couch and have to set up a game, or pass around the Switch, you know, in, in a mobile situation like maybe you're on a road trip or in a hotel, uh, it works extremely well. And for twenty bucks, it's it's really worth it, especially if you know the game already. I don't know how the tutorial works because I went straight into it because I know the game so well. So I don't know if it's going to teach you really well or not. Uh, but if you already know, if you already know and like Carcassonne, it is a really, really, really good version. Uh, I've played so many, so many terrible digital versions of board games that when I see one that's done with so much care and love, that uh, I'm very happy to spread the word. Peter, how are you on Carcassonne? Um, I, I like Carcassonne, and I have played the iPad version of it, which I'm assuming this is somewhat of a port of, and it's very good. So if you like Carcassonne, I would recommend that as well. Uh, and finally, I picked up the Resident Evil 2 remake, which I discussed very briefly last week. We'll talk about the new Resident Evil TV series. Uh, I have not played it yet. I'm playing it tonight. So on our next Water Cooler episode, I'll give a full report on how the Resident Evil 2 remake plays. Okay, so we, we, we've gone almost an hour and a half with only half the staff. How did this happen? Was it me going overboard about wrestling and magic? I don't, I don't know, because I feel like we were talking about less movies this time than any other episode. Maybe uh, we just, maybe it's magic. Yeah, maybe it's magic. Uh, I do want to mention one last thing. I mentioned a few week, a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking, I was talking to HT about uh, her bullet journaling, and I got inspired to start journaling. I'm, I'm not necessarily doing bullet journaling, I'm doing more traditional journaling with this app called Day One, which I talked about last week on the podcast. And I just want to say how much I'm loving this and how uh, I didn't anticipate how therapeutic it would be to kind of like let out your inner thoughts and what's going on and like frustrations and even just like, you know, getting down like people you're like I, I met a bunch of new friends this week and writing that down and having that down like in paper where I, you know, in a digital form where I can search for later on and you know, get access to. It's it's just uh, so refreshing and so uh, actually like also like I feel like <laughs> it's it, it almost, uh, you know, it, it, in my past I, I've gone to like, um, uh, what do you call it? Therapist? Psychologist? Yeah. Whatever. Therapist? Uh, yeah, one of those things uh, where, where you talk of whatever. I feel like this kind of does that uh, half of that job. Obviously, you're not getting the analysis part of it, but uh, get, just getting your thoughts uh, instead of like it boiling up inside of you. And it's, it's I'm not even saying like anything like bad is going on in my life, but just like, you know, uh, honest, being honest with yourself and being able to put that onto paper is just so therapeutic and so uh it just feels so good and um i'm just enjoying it so much and uh, it's also like i have a bad memory of things and i feel like me writing down what's happening every day at the end of the day is giving me a much better recall of this stuff I, I know that's probably not the purpose of journaling, but it's a unexpected side effect for me at least. Um, so I'm enjoying that. Uh, HG, do you do you feel with your bullet journaling uh, journaling that you get any of those unexpected side effects or, that I've mentioned? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I also have terrible recall and just being able to write things down and write down names and write down restaurants I've been to helps me recall them better. And um, like I even write down um, like little stories or little anecdotes that stood out to me during the day. And it helps just kind of put make the past, I don't know, a few months or whatever feel like less of a blur. Yeah. Totally. Um, I would recommend journaling to anybody out there. I mean, you don't have to download an app like day one, but I, I, I am really enjoying day one. I'm even like it let, allows you to put like photos and stuff into there. So like, you know, if I take an Instagram photo, I'll include it in that day's journal so that like if I look back at it in a year, I'll be able to kind of like uh, not just read what's going on, but see it. So it's it's kind of cool. Um but okay, we've gone long enough. Like I, as I said, we've we've done the normal sized water cooler episode with half as many people. I don't know what happened. Uh, she says it's magic. I don't. I don't know. But uh, you can find all the stories we mentioned on uh, today's podcast in the show notes, including all the Sundance reviews. Uh, this podcast, Slash from Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. And please go to iTunes, rate and review this podcast, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Do, do we really have to do this, Jacob? We, we only got you only got two people to tell jokes to. Are you uh, going to tell double the jokes? They're not jokes, Peter. They're they're, they're the truth. Okay, we, we discussed <laughs> this at length before. But according to this book, according to the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian, uh, for HT, the only way she can make up her mind is to powder her forehead. What, what, what section is this from? Oh, this, I get it. <laughs> yeah. This is from the dumbbells section. Wait, I, okay, I don't get the HD one. Why does she have the powder? Yeah, I put makeup on my oh. head. Oh. To, to, to powder, to, to make up her mind. She has uh, to powder her forehead. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, I had a good one for you, Peter. I, I lost it. Oh, no. We'll never, we'll never hear this insult ever. That's sad. Uh. <laughs> He paid five hundred dollars to have family tree search and found he was a sap. That's you. Hmm. Uh, so, so are we really going to end it after two insults? I don't even know how how we do this. How do we well, end the podcast with this with only three people? I don't know. Uh, I guess you HT insult yourself, Jacob. HT must have a sixth sense because there's no evidence for the other five. Ah. And Peter can go safely into the wild country inhabited by headhunters because they have no interest in his. What about Jacob? Jacob is a genius who's very smart. <laughs> <laughs>